0: Well, it is one of our great privileges to be a part of what God is doing collectively through Southern Baptist Churches uh, via the International Missions Board. And every Christmas, um, we take a special offering, uh, which is called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, in honor of one of our missionaries to support uh, the work of missionaries uh, overseas. And uh, we invite you to participate in that offering. Uh, In addition to uh, our giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, Through the designated giving of members of our church. We also uh, have just been incredibly blessed by God this year uh, to have met our budget and exceeded our budget already as of last week by almost $300,000 for the year. And so, yeah, praise Jesus for that. And so everything that is being given right now uh, above budget is going uh, to three things. One third of it uh, will go towards debt reduction to prepare our church uh, for future ministry opportunities. Uh, one third of that will be going to some priority projects, some uh, ministry projects, uh, building projects, things that we weren't able to fund uh, in our budget. And then a third of that is going to missions, some of that going uh, to supplement uh, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And so uh, we expect just in a tremendous amount of money to be able to impact uh, the kingdom uh, through what is given. And so uh, I would encourage you, uh, if you're a part of this church, uh, to give uh, regularly and sacrificially, and then as Christy and I pray to give above and beyond that this end of the year. You can give online at churchonbayshore.org. You can give uh, texting the amount you want to give to the number that you see on the screen, or you can uh, mail your check. I don't know anyone. In the service, does that. But um, you can also uh, give uh, dropping uh, your offering in one of the boxes located throughout our foyer and near our welcome. Desk. If you're visiting with us today, let me just say how grateful we are to have you with us as our guest, and we'd just love to know who you are. Uh, you can stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus this morning, or you can text the word, connect to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. Uh, before we get started uh, in the word this morning, let me just make mention of our schedule over the next few weeks. Next Sunday, uh, we have a normal uh, worship service and life group time uh, on Sunday morning, 8 o'clock, traditional. 9:30 and 11 o'clock contemporary services. We will have some special guests uh, helping lead us in worship next Sunday. Uh, so we look forward to seeing some of our Bayshore kids uh, in here uh, for a portion of our service next week. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, we have three services. We have one, I feel like we've kind of hit every need. We have a three o'clock service for those of you who wanna go home and eat dinner afterwards. Uh, we have the 415 service, which will have uh, our Bayshore kids ministry up through preschool age, Uh, So uh, for those of you who want to use that, and then at 5.30, uh, it'll be dark. So for those of you who want to be here when it's dark, and so that'll be our last service that day, and we encourage you, uh, if you can, to serve on our Connect team or serve in children's ministry on that day, and most of all, I encourage you to invite a friend who normally does not go to church to join you uh, for Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Sunday, we will have one service uh, at 11 o'clock for those of you who want to participate in that service. Well, so, it is Christmas time, and the birth of Jesus is on a lot of our minds. And when we think about the birth of Jesus, we must also think about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I know some people like the Christmas Jesus best when they're saying grace, and they would think when you say grace, you can say it to grown up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. Um, but as uh, Ricky Bobby's wife did point out, Jesus grew up. And Jesus did not only grow up, but after, they, after he grew up, he was killed. They killed the suffering servant. And after they killed him, he rose victoriously. The manger must be approached with the throne in view. The manger must be approached with the throne in view. Because Jesus is alive. And he is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. Over the next three weeks, we are going to be looking at the events that followed the resurrection of Jesus. It's really one sermon stretched out over three weeks, and so you can rejoice that I didn't try to fit it all into one Sunday morning. And so we're going to be jumping around in the Gospels. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 through 10 this morning. Matthew chapter 28, verse 8 through 10 says that, So they, that's the women who saw Jesus or saw the empty tomb, departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me, So the, the women were afraid because there had been this empty tomb and they encounter a risen Jesus. And this is just, there's great magnitude and there's great uh, unparalleled, you know, really uh, circumstances to this. And so there's this fear that strikes them. But Luke tells us in Luke chapter 24, verse 8, says, And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. The disciples did not believe what these women were saying. But Peter tells us, excuse me, but Peter goes, uh, you know, to see for himself. Luke tells us that Jesus also appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks. And when those disciples returned to talk with the other disciples, Luke tells us, if you move on to verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and said, give me blackened fish and said, no, I'm just kidding. He took it and ate before them. Now, the gospel writers tell us that Jesus rose from the grave, that he appeared to the disciples and that they had a a meal with him. Then they spend 40 days learning from him before he ascends to heaven. Paul writes that at least 500 people witness the risen Christ walking the earth now now what an astounding claim that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus ascended to the throne in heaven and this is important to think about as we think about Christmas why is this so important to think about as we think about Christmas when we think of Jesus. Because without this belief, Christianity is not distinct from Buddhism. Jesus is not distinct from Gandhi. The resurrection is central to the Christian faith. The resurrection is central to our faith. Tim Keller says this, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Perhaps you're here today, or you're watching online, and you admire Jesus. And you're kind of on the fence about how serious you want to be about the things of Jesus, the ways of Jesus. And what you're evaluating is what he had to say what he taught about life, what he taught about family, what he taught about whatever area it is you're kind of trying to get better at. But the issue for you today is not his teaching. The issue that confronts you today is whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, then he has authority over life and over death and over sin, and over hell, and over everything, and over you, and over me. So, of course, then this is the primary thing that people who do not believe are going to try to ignore, or deny, or explain away. For 2,000 years, this has been true. And the scriptures even tell us that the chief priests were scrambling around to figure out how to cover this up. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, it tells us that that while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story had been spread among the Jews to this day. So as I referenced last week, the the Roman guards were in charge of the body of Jesus. And the penalty for losing the body of anyone that they were guarding would be their own life. If you were protecting a, a living person or a dead body and you lost it, then you could have to replace it with your life, just as if you were guarding $100,000, you would then owe the government $100,000, which is a debt you probably could not pay in, in that day. And so these guards go and tell people what happened, and seizing this opportunity, the chief priests say, hey, we'll, we'll pay you if you just say the disciples stole the body. Well, they don't have anything to lose because they're already in trouble, so this sounds like something that might be advantageous for them to say. Now, we also learn that some of the guards are hiding in fear. Maybe they're just afraid about what Pilate, uh, the governor, would do to them, and so they're hiding. Or maybe, you know, the ground shook and an angel showed up and the tomb was rolled away, and so they're afraid of that, or, or maybe both. But it was worth it to the Jewish council to pay the soldiers because their entire livelihood was at stake. They were wealthy because of their religion the religion that Jesus questioned, the reason they had Jesus arrested and killed. And what Matthew alleges is that the resurrection was real and it was great evidence, but there were many who did not want to believe it or didn't want it to be true, so they came up with other answers to what might have happened. Today, many people cannot believe it or don't want it to be true. And in the same way, they deny or explain away the resurrection. Now, I understand why you might struggle to believe this. It's a pretty radical thing. It takes faith to believe this. But what if it doesn't take as much faith as you might think? You see, I think sometimes church people, we pride ourselves on our faith, And so the whole thing gets misconstrued. You see, as people, we like to pride ourselves on anything. I'll give you an example. Now, I can't talk smack about Georgia football because I'm a Florida Gator fan, and we can't talk smack about anything right now. But the Heisman Trophy vote happened last night. And while I think Stetson Bennett did a great job, the fact that someone would think he's the best athlete in the nation is something you can only be blinded by by red and black. And, and, and so, look, we can debate that. There are people who are literally posting things online like they would die for that truth. They take so much pride in their SEC football team that they would defend their quarterback saying he's the best player in the nation when I don't really think that's obvious. Now, the point that I use that To say The reason I use that is to say we take pride in just about anything. So certainly when it comes to our faith, which is probably something we hold about the dearest, then we are tempted to begin to be prideful about our faith. That's why you see people kind of getting wacky uh, in their faith, because now it's look at me, look at the faith I have, look at the things I can do and all that stuff. And so we might not all go to those extremes, but we begin to kind of look down on people who don't have the kind of faith that we might have. But, But what about this? What if the resurrection is actually very likely? What if it actually can almost be proven? And so it doesn't take this supernatural faith to believe in it, but just a little bit of faith. Now, would that change people's mind who don't believe the resurrection? Would that change your mind? Because if you do investigate these events, It's not just some mythology. There's some real historical evidence. And as we look at the resurrection over the next three weeks, I want to focus in on this today. Dr. Gary Habermas, who's a distinguished professor of philosophy and theology at Liberty University, go flames, has probably done the most comprehensive investigation of the resurrection. In his consultation of 1,400 scholarly works, ranging from very liberal to conservative, he concluded that almost all of these works affirm the following things as true. Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Almost all of these works show and reference Jesus dying by Roman crucifixion. Almost all of them reference a burial of Jesus, probably in a private tomb, many suggest, Almost all of these works acknowledge the disciples were discouraged by this, by the death and the burial of Jesus. Almost all of these historical works recognize the tomb was found empty. Almost all of these historical works reference that the disciples say they saw Jesus. They believed they saw Jesus. Almost all of these works reference that the disciples changed. You could say they were transformed. And that they were even willing to die for the newfound belief. Almost all of these historical works give evidence that the resurrection was proclaimed from the beginning of the church, of the, from the Christian church. That Jerusalem, where Jesus was buried and crucified, is where this began to be proclaimed. That the church began to meet on Sundays, and so there was a change of you know the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday because of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, Pliny the Elder referenced Christians and said they got up at sunrise on Sunday because they still had to work because their Jewish you know, culture hadn't fully changed. Uh, and so Saturday was the Sabbath day, but Christians believe now Sunday was the day uh, of worship, and yet their culture required them to work, so they would get up and worship early in the morning. Some of you can't get here on time for 9:30, 11. but that's another thing. And, and all these historical documents recognize that skeptics believed that they saw Jesus. People like James, the half-brother of Jesus, Saul of Tarsus, and others. All of these things appear to be historically accurate. They don't prove that Jesus rose from the grave, but they lead to the great possibility that Jesus either rose from the grave or there's some other explanation for all of these things. So let's look at the five most popular theories that deny the resurrection of Jesus. The first is the hallucination theory. That's the belief that the disciples were just delusional. And because they were fanatics... Um, because of the religious zealousness, they thought they saw Jesus. They had visions, but they weren't real. And, and we've ser- certainly seen in amongst religious people that people claim to have seen things and um, have based their life around that. But let me just suggest a few issues with this theory in reference to the resurrection of Christ. I'll remind you that they were dying for this. They did not gain status or... Wealth because of this. In fact, if anything, it was the opposite because of this. And I'll also remind you that they don't just say they saw a spirit. They ate with him. And they drank with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that it wasn't just the disciples. There were at least 500 witnesses who were still alive when the letter to the Corinthians was being spread who could verify what they saw. I'll also, you know, mentioned that the early church believed this. It wasn't just the disciples, and this was a buried belief, but it's in early church doctrines and documents. I'll also point out that James, the half-brother of Jesus, did not believe Jesus was God, because, I mean, if you grew up with your brother, and he said he was God, you'd probably be like, mm, no. But then he rose from the grave. And so he's like, all right, you're right on this one. One time, James admitted that his brother was right. He was right. And the resurrection was something that was spreading early on in the life of the church. Now, this still doesn't count for the empty tomb. So another popular theory is the wrong tomb theory. There have been those who say, what happened was the disciples went to the wrong tomb. It hadn't been used yet. It was empty. And so they thought, oh, Jesus must have rose from the grave then. Now, here's some thoughts about this. This does not explain the fact that the disciples believe he was alive. Because they had denied and they had hid when Jesus was crucified, when his earthly kingdom was over from their perspective. But now, all of a sudden, there's a transformation that takes place. And they have a belief and they have a passion. Let me also say, if some have said, well, they just found this empty tomb and so they decided they're going to, you know, make up this belief. Jewish leaders and Roman guards knew where the tomb was They could prove this wrong, but they didn't. You see, evidence points to the fact that they explained why the tomb was empty, not that they proved that it wasn't empty. The evidence points to the fact that Jesus's tomb was empty. Another theory about this is the substitution theory, that it was someone else who died on the cross. Muslims believe that it wasn't Jesus on the cross. That's in the Quran. It was written by Muhammad 600 years later that Judas was the one who died on the cross. Now, again, I want you to think about this. This alleges that Romans, Jewish officials, and disciples are really stupid, that they mistook someone else for Jesus on the cross. Now, I realize that progressive arrogance always looks back at previous generations as dumber than us. Because if you talk to most people in their 20s and 30s, especially who write for a living, they even look upon people who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s as stupider than this generation. And again, I didn't say they were, but I'm saying that's how people look back on generations that come before them. It's like we're always progressing, and so we're always becoming more intelligent. And so we believe we've evolved so much further than these people back then, whenever it was, the founding of our country or all the way back to the times of Jesus. I would just say, look at social media and realize I wouldn't put a lot of stock in progressive intelligence, (laughs) And secondly, how arrogant is that to really look back upon every generation that ever lived and think they were some kind of Neanderthals? These are highly educated, highly trained, highly gifted elite of society who are in charge of the crucifixion of Jesus. And to think that they're so stupid that they would mistake him. And the disciples who followed him so intimately are so stupid that they would mistake who it was on the cross it's just complete arrogance. And also, why, why all the other eyewitnesses? Why the other historical references that it was Jesus who died? That's not really a debatable answer. And this still doesn't answer the question, why is there an empty tomb? Because if Judas was crucified, shouldn't he have been in that tomb? Historian Justin says that stories of the disciples stealing Jesus' body were still being spread in the middle of the second century. That means there's still this debate going on a hundred years later as to why the tomb was empty. The fourth most popular theory is the swoon theory. This is that Jesus didn't die on the cross, that he was unconscious. And so then he was put into the tomb and he came out. I want you to think on this. The Romans are professional executioners. History and archaeology supports this. And the events surrounding Jesus' life and consistent with what would typically happen in a crucifixion is that someone would die by cardiac arrest or their lungs and heart would be pierced. Now also think about the fact that the Jews wanted Jesus dead. And so what you're alleging here is that they neglected making sure these things happen. Then badly beaten, worn Jesus woke up, removed the stone from the tomb himself, outmaneuvered the Roman soldiers and said, I'm alive. Now, I'll just say this, even if that's just true, I might want to follow him anyway. (laughs) But you're stepping outside of reality here. There are historical references to Jesus' death by Josephus, Tacitus, Thallus, and in the Talmud. This isn't the princess bride. There isn't a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Jesus historically lived, and he died. The last theory, and probably the most popular theory, and the one that we see circulating even in the times of the writings of the Gospels, is the stolen body theory. It's pretty much self-explanatory. After leaving the scene... In fear of their lives, the disciples then changed their mind, decided to go steal the body, and then get beaten and tortured and martyred for saying Jesus had lived and rose. Now, first of all, I want you to think about this. These are the Roman soldiers. These are the best of the best. I love our media team here at Church on Bayshore, but this is alleging that our media team at Church on Bayshore could somehow take down a bunch of green berets. Love you guys, y'all are awesome. That's what you're saying here is happening with these guys taking down these Roman soldiers. And then they said he rose from the grave. Which, why would they say this? You see, resurrection back into the body was not something that somebody who grew up as a Jew would desire. And it's not somebody something somebody who was being influenced by Greek thought would think of because they had dualism and there would be no resurrected body in Greek thought and Jews would have not acclaimed an individual resurrection, leaving others to this world. They were looking forward to a corporate resurrection according to Daniel chapter 12. And so you might have learned in college that they would have likely made this up, but there's no historical evidence that any of this was believed at this time. Now, in recent days, there's uh, been a few things that have been said by some, you know, like popular, I would say more entertainment, but we'll give some historical uh, writings. So, some have said that um, the, the God Marduk is who, Babylonian God Marduk is who uh, the disciples took this idea from, that he was um, not a Swedish man, even though that's what that sounds like, but that he was uh, this God who believed to be uh, resurrected, but there's actually not any historical documentation about Marduk until about 150 AD. So the writings of the gospels actually uh, came before any historical evidence that Marduk was uh, someone we believed in. Others have used the Greek god Adonis and Addis, uh, who there's some kind of resurrection in them, saying that the disciples, the early church, took from that, But actually, again, uh, 150 to 200 AD are the earliest documents we have uh, about Adonis and Attis, and also those Greeks believed in a reincarnation into a different mortal body. So again, the Gospels predate that, and it's a different kind of resurrection. Now, the only resurrected God that there's any documents historically that predate what we have in the New Testament is Osiris. Osiris was made popular in Zeitgeist by Bill Maher and in the book, The Pagan Christ. And there's some, there's some you know, uses of Osiris and Horus that they would allege that's where Christianity got their idea for the resurrected Jesus. You can go to hnn.us and read uh, Dr. W. Ward Gask uh, writing on this. He's a George Mason University professor and he emailed 20 Egyptian scholars who all said there is no actual evidence that Horus was virgin born and no evidence that he had a fisher of men or that he had 12 followers. So kind of what everybody would say basically then is just the resurrection of Jesus is something that is believed because of corruption of the early church, that it was a myth and then it was kind of you know built upon and then again it was made up and only a handful of people believed in it. But the reality is This is not something that would have been made up in this day. It would only be written down by people who believed it. I'm not saying it proves it, but believed it to be true. N.T. Wright says this, Christian was born into a world where its central claim, the resurrection of Jesus, was known to be false. Many believed that dead were non-existent. Outside Judaism, nobody believed in a resurrection. He says no one would have invented the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it. No matter how guilty they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures, to suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. His point is that they're writing believing that they saw these things happened. And I've covered all the popular theories, uh, and perhaps there are more on what might have happened, but all of these theories do lack evidence of proof. William Lane Craig says this. I would argue that the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead is not at all improbable. In fact, Based on the evidence, it is the best explanation for what happened. What is improbable is the hypothesis that Jesus naturally rose from the dead. That, I would agree, is outlandish. Any hypothesis would be more probable than saying the corpse of Jesus spontaneously came back to life. But the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead doesn't contradict science or any known facts of experience. All it requires is the hypothesis that God exists. And I think there are good re- independent reasons for believing that he does. As long as the existence of God is even possible, it's possible that he acted in history by raising Jesus from the dead. Why? Why? Did these disciples change their tone? Why did people believe in Jesus? Why did it spread the way that it did? Why did people proclaim it and put their lives on the line for this message? Why did it spread in the very place where people hated Jesus the most? Why did this small sect of people grow so fast that the most powerful nation said, we have to adapt to this? Why over the course of 1700 years have people traveled the world to tell others about this? Why have countless people died going to hostile places because of him why today are we taking up in an offering to send people who commit their lives to go to places where very little people know about it to talk about these things why today do over 2 million people claim to believe that it is possible that he rose from the grave there are two possible explanations somehow they made all this up covered all this up in an improbable way that we do not have evidence for or Jesus indeed rose from the grave. And while I cannot prove that he rose from the grave, there is overwhelming evidence that Jesus died, that his tomb is empty, and that his eyewitness, that eyewitnesses saw him alive. No one thing gives proof, but all this evidence shows that there is a real probability that Jesus rose from the grave. Lord Lyndhurst, High Chancellor of Great Britain, said in 1846, I know pretty well what evidence is I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. I'm not even getting into the reliability of the Bible. It's historical reliability. It's literary reliability. It's testimony reliability. And none of what I'm saying proves that the resurrection happens or that the Bible is reliable, but it gives a lot of overwhelming evidence for both of these things. And I would say to you today, if you are requiring evidence from me for the resurrection... Then there is also a burden of proof from you, and what actually happened. Antony Flew, who was a British philosopher, one of the most influential atheists to ever live, became a deist later in his life. He could not get over the fact that life became life. How did life became alive? And he would go on to say, "You cannot limit the possibilities of an omnipotence of omnipotence." Except to produce theologically impossible. But everything else is open to omnipotence. If there is a God, all of this can be true. And Antony Flew, however, still could not believe and submit his life to Jesus, even though he admitted the evidence was strong. And there are those this morning that are not following Jesus and they're looking for evidence to support they're not following Jesus, but Bible inconsistencies, the behavior of Christians, the philosophical problems of how God could allow injustice or whatever it may be. And I'm happy to talk with you about those more. But let me just ask you this question this morning. Maybe you don't want this to be true. Maybe you don't want this to be true because of the implications on your life. If Jesus rose from the grave, there are incredible implications for all of our lives. If Jesus rose from the grave, there are incredible implications for all of our lives. The disciples say that Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That is certainly true if he rose from the dead. So it doesn't matter then What I think, or I feel, or I want. What matters is that He rose from the grave, that He has all authority. And so the life that I live is centered around that. You see, life is centered around the resurrection. My life and your life are found in understanding the resurrection. And when you think about the idea of Christianity, this is central to the idea of Christianity. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says that, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth, the person confesses and is saved. Here in, in this passage, it's saying being a Christian Being saved, right standing with God, isn't because you think Jesus is a cute baby and it inspires you to live a good life. It's because you realize that that cute baby grew up, was sinless, died on the cross, our sins, and then rose victoriously in uh, life over death. And that's where salvation is found. And so we believe in the resurrection. We're convinced in the resurrection. It's not blind faith, but it is a little faith. It's not seeing everything, but seeing enough and trusting him and realizing faith of a mustard seed, God could do great works through it. And so my encouragement to you today would be to begin to try and trust him and see him prove himself over and over. Now, some of you said, oh, I've tried it. I think you've tried it like my children tried vegetables. Like, oh, I don't like this. Try it. Oh, no, it's disgusting. You didn't. Okay, never mind. I'm not going to go there. And you, if you're honest with your life and honest with yourself, should want this to be truth. Maybe if your life is flat and empty, and without exhilaration, without significance, without fulfillment, it's because you don't see the risen Christ for who he really is and you haven't submitted to him. See, and this is for those who proclaim or profess Christ. Intellectual knowledge is not enough. I think many professing Christians have not really submitted to Christ and all over this town and all over the Bible Belt and all over the world, we've deceived ourselves. You see, we must believe that Jesus is Lord, that he's master. Maybe if you're honest, you hate that because you aren't going to submit to anyone. And I think in church, we've catered to this. And we have begin to kind of mold how we do church and taken away the centrality of the resurrection. But church is centered around the resurrection. Alistair Begg says, so many people, clergy, instead of accepting the record as stated, have decided for whatever reason to compromise the straightforward expression of its truth on the basis of intellectual confusion in order to cater to people's emotional convenience. And so what happens is the trumpet gives an uncertain sound. And guess what? The people do not go out to battle. If it was really the responsibility of the pastor to demythologize the gospel, if it was really the responsibility of the Bible teacher to psychologize the whole thing, to sentimentalize it, that's a lot of Isa's. To domesticate it, that would be one thing, but it isn't. No, the charge is the same charge. Preach a resurrected Christ and the hope that is found in him. Robert Harris, as a part of his trilogy on Cicero and Julius Caesar said, once we succumb to the dictatorship of relativism, As it has been properly called, an attempt to survive by accommodating ourselves to every passing idea and fad of modernism, our ship is lost. We do not need a church that will move with the world, but a church that will move the world. The only church that will move the world is a church that is absolutely convinced that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a veritable fact and that it is in comparable. And that is what stands out about Christianity, and that is why the birth of Jesus matters, is because he rose from the grave and he is on the throne at the right hand of the Father with all authority interceding for us. And that is the difference in our lives, because not only is life centered around resurrection, and therefore the church should be centered around resurrection, But death is centered around the resurrection. I know that in this church family, many are feeling the sting of death this year. But in Christ, that sting is temporary. The only way to deprive death of its sting is freedom from sin. And that freedom is found in Christ alone. And that freedom is assured, not just because he walked this earth, but because he defeated death. And the only real reason to care about all of this is because of the resurrection of Christ. I'll close by reading Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. After he kind of explains a little bit what I've been talking about, he says this in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, our faith is pointless. It doesn't matter how much faith we have, how strong it is. Faith is only as strong as the object in which that faith is placed. And if Jesus was just an admirable, sweet, loving, good teacher... There is no reason to revolve our life around him. And those who died in him, they're asleep. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. enemy to be destroyed is death Christ has authority over every power that has ever ruled and reigned including death the life of Christ matters because it is indestructible and in him we find life I believe that in a very brief way I have given you a lot of evidence that supports the reality that Jesus lived and that he died and that the tomb was empty and that he rose from the grave. And I would love to talk to you more about historical evidence, apologetics, but let me say this to you. As a man to men, as a man to women, When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you come alive. There is hope in Him. And today, if you are lacking that hope, submit to Him. I know there's fear of control, some of that you're working through from things you've experienced in your life, things that have happened to you. But here's what I'm saying to you today Jesus has all authority place your hands in his. It doesn't require great faith. It just requires a great God. Trust in him today. Let's pray. Jesus, you don't ask for us to have it all together or to have all the answers. You just want us to acknowledge that you hold all things together. And that you are the answer. Of all the questions and doubts and issues in our minds today, may what stands out the loudest to us be the resurrection of Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, on the throne, where all things will be in subjection. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.